Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to How I Got Greenlit. I'm Alex Collegian. I'm Ryan Gibson. And we're here with noted producer Evan Ostrowski. Thanks for joining us, Evan. Of course. For first-time listeners, we are the Film Lovers podcast. We talk to leading filmmakers about how they got in the business, uh, some significant moments in their career, and then they bring us a film to discuss that influenced them. Today, Evan brought us Manhunter, directed by Michael Mann. And our film choices are a little bit different. We like to do B-sides of famous directors. So he said, Michael Mann. I said, fine, just not Heat. And so he picked right. one of our favorites, which is called Manhunter. And we'll get into that later. Right now, thank you for joining us, Evan. Of course. Full disclosure, Evan and I went to NYU together and uh, go way back. And I think moved out to L.A. around the same time, maybe within a year or two. Yeah. And I've worked together on all kinds of fun stuff from feature films to stop motion animated digital episode <laughs> pretty oh much God. anything and everything yeah i we need to we, we're going to do a whole chapter on the rotten fruit don't uh. don't worry <laughs> but anyway welcome welcome evan thank you uh ryan and i have worked together extensively as well i forget how i introduced you guys was it on the feature or no well at this, no no evan and i have known each other at this point I think for almost 20 years. I mean, no, probably 15 years. No, no but we, we worked together back in, uh, what is it, like, uh, like oh, 08, 09? Yeah, yeah, commercials. Yeah, stuff, right? yeah, yeah, we yeah, did yeah, commercial yeah, stuff, stuff, together. stuff together and, you know, and onward. Yes, Evan is what I, I would call or what people call a networker. He is a people person. He is got a lot of friends. He stays friends with a lot of people and constantly communicates. And that's his strength and weakness. Although people person, I'm sorry. I, I know you're not supposed to insult the guest right away, but that's a I'm strength. a people person with everybody except Ryan, you know. But, right, uh, right. Exactly. That might be true. That exactly. might be Ryan, true. you got to treat him more like a caged animal. And then it really you get great, you really get great great results that way. So. Yeah, he likes to poke the bear, so to speak. Yeah, so. There you go. Yeah, I got a good, good, good poker. Yeah, Evan, so how did you find your love in the beginning when you were young? Can you take us back to the beginning and where you found your love for film or movies or cinema, whatever you want to call it, the magic of? Can you start back in, you know, when you were a kid, like the, your first inkling of? Sure. That would be great. Yeah, I mean, like, like for me, it wasn't like, uh, you know, wasn't a big, when I was a kid, realization like sitting in the movie theater even though you know i did have i think my seventh or eighth birthday which happens to be in may we went to go see star wars which was just going to be this you know fun big fun cool movie that was uh going to come out but mostly later on when i got into my teenage years um, my parents uh, moved out to california what our neighbor at the time had a nephew going to afi uh, for grad school and they knocked on our door and said um, hey, can we shoot this shot that like, you know, like involves like your front door or something? And and my mom was like, what? I don't get it. And then, and, you know, these young guys and gals and, and my mom was like, yeah, sure. Whatever, anything you want to do, you just got to have my son be your PA. 
And, uh, you know, like she wanted to get me out of the house or I don't know what the hell was going on. And I hung out with these like 22, 25, four year old guys and gals, like for two days, it was super fun. And that's when I kind of realized, Hey, you know, like you can go to school for this, like, this is cool. And at the time I was doing some high school theater stuff and I was thinking, well, maybe I should get serious about it. But, uh, and then I looked in the mirror and I realized I was kind of goofy looking. So maybe I'm better behind the camera than in front of the camera. (laughs) Now, you did do acting for, didn't you go to a high school in Los Angeles? Yeah. Yeah. I went to LOXO, which is the kind of high school for the, for the performing arts here in LA, you know, for my last few years of high school and I graduated there and it was an amazing experience. It's, it's a wonderful school. I highly recommend it. My daughter goes there now. She's uh, in the visual arts program. I really got a, like a deep dive incredibly quickly into kind of the great masterworks of theater Chekhov, Ibsen, Sam Shepard, on and on and on and on. And the arts professors there, the arts teachers were not like LAUSD certified, you know, like do your homework by four o'clock or you're going to get a C. These were like professional acting teachers and that they, they came into the school and uh, were part of the staff. And so and the majority of them had gone to Juilliard or ACT and had acted professionally and were directing and doing whatnot. So, you know, they get handed these like 35 kids my junior year and they kind of turn you into a theater troupe and you do five or six shows and you do scene study, you do audition techniques, you do Edith Skinner standard American speech, which is taught at Juilliard. You do the Suzuki method of movement, which is taught at Juilliard. It was amazing. It really taught me two really important things that this is what I want to do with my life and meaning I want to be in, in the arts, but it also taught me being surrounded by such talented actors that are were way beyond me that, you know what, I'm going to go into, I'm going to film school. Like I'm, I was all in on film school, like as a sophomore or junior locks really helped me kind of get there. And that's, that's where Alex and I went, we went to NYU and, and the rest is the rest. I just want to go back just for a second. Cause when you said, these weren't your ordinary LAUSD teachers. They were professionals working in the field at the time. Like they had experience. Yeah, very, yeah, very much so. I mean, the day structured still the exact same way, you know, because my, you know, like I said, my daughter goes there. The morning is all academics taught by LAUSD teachers and they're great. And then you have lunch. And then for four hours or three and a half hours, you go to your conservatory classes, which are taught by industry professionals. And it's a it's a really great immersive uh, program for anybody, any any young person that's very serious about the arts. They have acting, visual arts, music, uh, dance um, and filmmaking. Now, they didn't have film when I was there. They added that a few years after I left. But uh, that's one of the majors now. So you went through that program, you realized you wanted to be a part of it, but not necessarily the part that you kind of went there four, which was acting. So you went through that program and then you said you ended up in NYU with Alex. How did that take place? Because you're in Southern California. You could have gone to USC. You could have gone to UCLA film school like Coppola. Like, how did you? I I went to USC for a year and I hated it from like the, from the, from the go. Like I was just in the wrong place at the wrong, you know, it, it was just not a great fit. I thought it would be a great fit. I was interning at a company that barely exists, or, you know, I still exists called TriStar while I was at USC, but I I didn't fit into the culture there. And the thing about LOX is that the high school I was at 
the kids are heavily recruited there to go to all the major arts universities. So I remember when the NYU representative came out to our school, she didn't handed out business cards to all of us and said, Hey, my name is, I think her name is Rebecca. I can't remember her last name because it's been, it's been, it's been a minute. And I kept her card like in my whatever backpack. And I remember I called her like, I think right before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving break, you were already going to I was USC. At, I was at USC. I met some really some some good people there, but I didn't feel right. And so I called her and she said, look, why don't you apply for sophomore year? Fax me your application before you snail mail it in, which is what you did back in the day. And then I'll help kind of push it through. And I was like, all right. And then I did that. I, the, I did think I did it all over Christmas break. And then I got a letter in the mail, like the day before classes started that I was, that I got into NYU film school. And so I knew where I was going in in sophomore year and, you know, couldn't wait to get out, get out back to New York. And uh, I moved out there and was, went there from sophomore year on through my senior year and loved it. Right. That's where you grew up. I don't think we (laughs) originally, originally grew up in the New York area, New York city, Connecticut, Long Long Island, all that. Uh, That's, and wait, you got a letter the day before. classes started yeah yeah the recruiter was was wonderful i think she even called me after my fax arrived because it was like a 47 page fax i remember we i remember sending the fax from my mom's office she where she used to work for the fidelity in century city thanks fidelity for letting me use your fax machine (laughs) (laughs) they were like harder to find like in the early 90s you know and she called me and said, you're in and, and a letter should be there in a day or so. And it arrived like that day or something. So wow, yeah, it was great. So let me ask you this. So you have a kid in high school in the creative arts school that you went to. Is she going to go into the film business? I hope not. <laughs> that was kind of my follow up question. Like, because almost everyone I know in the business with kids are like, uh, yeah, I just pray they don't follow me down yeah, the I wish dark they had road. <laughs> I wish they had a performing arts school for dentistry. <laughs> did, did, wait, did you? Are you? Did you say when she wanted to go to that school? Did you? Did you question? Yeah, were you like really? No, no, no not at all. I mean, like every kid is different, as you know. Also, you had a great experience there. I had a great experience there and the ability for me to get into the university or universities of my choice was a lot easier because of that, because it has a marquee name in the high school world. And then, you know, the flip side of that is you guys both know my wife's an animator and a really talented artist and painter and drawer, you know, drawer, is that a word? Drawer. Drawer. But my, you know, my wife's a, you know, been an illustrator year plus like 3d computer animators, you know, her IMDB credits are like longer than all of ours combined. She's a CG seasoned veteran. Like when CG, like from the dawn of like uh, Pixar video toasters. Yeah. Video. Yeah. She used to do Dave Letterman's top 10 list on, on that that was her first job right out of school. So, 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 so she gets a lot of talent from my wife, particularly in the visual arts. And you know what, like if she goes into the arts, great. Like, you know, like I'm all for it. You know, it's gotta be right for the kid. You know, my, my old, my oldest son's going to engineering school in the fall and it's right for him. I had no reservations at all. In fact, we're going to the, uh, she's going with me to the high school reunion next week, funny enough. Wow. Yeah. The, the thing I remember about NYU specifically, particularly as we became like juniors and seniors, is that the people that were like making films, you know, like 
that got into like the thesis classes and pitched their way. You know, Eli Roth, of course, you know, was in my class as well. The kids that made films and really put their nose to the grindstone as seniors, I tended to be the ones that kept doing it when they graduated because you, you know, NYU, as you remember, was like, it was a little bit like a free for all. Like you had to fight your way to get your film made. But if you put up a good fight, you're going to get your film made. But if you phoned it in, the professors were like, uh, no, dude, like, nah, come back next week. And as long as you kept up the battle, then you win. And I always thought that was a great proving ground for filmmaking, but it's the same when you graduate. You graduate, you're like, okay, now what? Like how the, you know, there is no class at NYU called, now what, how do I get my film made? I mean, by the way, there should be, but I'll be honest with you, like, what the fuck is it going to be in that class? You know, like, how do you teach that? Yeah, but that opens up a whole host of stuff that I always complain about. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'll probably do like one or two lectures at friends film classes or writing sure. classes or whatever yeah. a year. And I, I'm always like, well, what do you guys want to be when you grow up or whatever? And they were just like we were, which is, yeah, we listened. We, we, we went to our classes. We listened to the professor, blah, blah, blah. But I always leaned forward and was like, this is a working director or this is an actor you've heard of. And like those lecture halls would be crowded and the, and the yep. Q and a after would go on for two more hours than the lecture in terms of like, well, how did you get started and how did you get an agent and what is it really like? And they're still like that. That's what was great about NYU. Was, I mean, we had the Cone brothers came by um, yeah. Spike Lee was like teaching there. Like I always used to bump into on the damn elevator yeah, the last Hallstrom came there. Were, I mean, it went on and on. I, were you at the screening when they showed uh, Reservoir Dogs? No. Dude, they showed. So like the distributors on Friday afternoons would bring films to NYU and it would just be like for free for students. Yeah, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, some sometimes the, the, the directors comes if they were namey, sometimes they wouldn't. And they'd shown some goofball film like first and I'd watch it. And then, and then the distributor was like, Hey, we have this new film coming out called Reservoir Dogs. Um, you guys should check it out. It stars Harvey Keitel. And I remember like half of us stayed and you know, it was like Friday afternoon, you know, like what else are we going to do except like go, go hit a bar or something. And then like, I was just riveted. Like, I mean, it was like somebody stapled me to my chair and you know, that first, that first shootout, you know, was like, I'm like, what the, what is this movie? And I wish Tarantino had come. Like, we had never heard of the guy. And, and and I remember telling people like, was that movie rat like amazing? Or was it just me? And we were like, holy, yeah, we were all, we were all blown away. So that was another great thing about NYU was just the exposure to film, the filmmakers and seeing, seeing a lot of those films early, you know? So anyways, that's what I remember. So my NYU Harvey Keitel moment is the first week I got there. I'm in the dorms and uh, I have a couple of goofy roommates and we walk outside Union Square on the curb, Harvey Keitel shooting Bad Lieutenant. And I'm kind of like, whoa, but this goofy do you, roommate do you know, of mine. Do you know at the time it was Bad Lieutenant or no? I know, yes, it was definitely bad lieutenant. So no, I mean, uh, how? Did, but you didn't. Oh no, no, we just knew like that's they were fucking shooting Harvey Keitel standing outside our dorm. Right, and I'm like, 
wow, I'm in the big city now, <laughs> you know, like whatever, like skyscrapers and everything. And uh, so I just was kind of staring at like, ooh, cameras and lights and flags. And, yeah. and my roommate walks up to him and he goes, hey, you're Harvey Keitel. He's like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, why'd you get fired off of Apocalypse Now? Oh my God, are you... <laughs> Did he get punched as he probably should have? Well, he definitely did the classic Harvey Keitel take where his face started to pinch into like a single point. Like, who the fuck are you to talk to me like that? I mean, he didn't scream, but he was like, get the fuck out of here. You know, like Harvey, get for Harvey. You know what? Hey, that's, that's New York City rules, man. I couldn't believe it. I was just like, wow. That's that's a true story. That's a honest true story. To God. Yeah, yeah. It's honest it's, to God. I, I, I don't doubt it. I mean, oh finally, that's God. how I got my first job in New York. I was, I was walking up by um, the far. Well, no, it was. In, I was in downtown. Actually, I take it back. I was in downtown, and I walked by a movie set, and uh, I saw them filming, and I asked the PA what it was, and they told me it was called Tribeca. And it was a, they said it was a pilot starring Lawrence Fishburne. And I was like, I vaguely remember on? this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. I was, Can I get a job in this? And the guy's like, I don't know. And he slipped me the call sheet, which had the production company address. So I went home and I had my, I, I had a like little small stack of resumes ready to go. I wrote a handwritten letter to the ADs. Matt Matt Weiner and I can't remember the first AD, but Matt Weiner. Oh come on, not no, the same one. Not the same. I mean, Matt Weiner was second. He was second AD, and I mailed it like that day. And he calls me like three days later, and says, "Hey, I heard you came by because I wrote in my letter, and I hate NYU students." I was like, "Okay, <laughs> I would yeah, hire I you, but but fuck you." Mouth. Second thing out of his he mouth. He said, I hate NYU students. I hate NYU students. I never hire them, but I liked your letter. I liked your gumption. What are you doing tomorrow? Could you be here at nine or whatever it was? I was like, yes, 100%. He goes, if you're one minute late, don't even try to find me. I was like, so I showed up like 30 minutes early, which he liked. And then they just put me to work. And I remember I was so nervous and the AD crew was like working for a bunch of like, you know, like steelhead and Marines. I would like run. They, they'd give me and say, Hey, Evan, I want you to go here and do this. And, that. and I like, I'd run. And they, they, they all start laughing, you know, like, look at the NYU kid running. But that's how I kind of earned my stripes with that crew of guys and gals. And I worked with them for like two plus maybe three years and then uh, I did Tribeca with them. And I did Home Alone with them. And I did uh, a Wolf with them and, and a bunch of other things. With that production crew, you did uh, Tribeca and Home Alone and Wolf? We we did Tribeca, the TV show. We Then we did Home Alone 2. I, I might be getting in reverse order because I'm so are you, old. Now. Are you talking about Wolf with Jack Nicholson? Then we did Jack, the Jack Nicholson Wolf film. Wait a and minute. Then, you're, you're burying the lead. So did you meet Donald Trump on the set of Home Alone 2? I did not. On the set of Home Alone 2, my job was to uh, go into the floor above where they were filming and to have a walkie-talkie. And for 12 hours a day, I was to ask the cleaning women very nicely to not vacuum during the rolls. 
And there were all these <laughs> lovely Jamaican gals. And there was like four or five of them. This was like the middle of the day. It's so like nobody's in the plaza. They're all out in the city. And then I'd like sprint up and down the hallways and I would say to them, and hey, ladies, please, 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 we're about to all get. And they were so nice. And they were like, you know, we'd stand there, like, you know, you know, why they'd roll and cut. And that's, and that's, I did that. And that's always what's happening off screen. People don't realize that everyone's just frozen in time, frozen, standing there. Hey, don't vacuum, you know, anyways. But yes, that was my first job and, uh, or my, how I got into PA. You know, I was, I was in New York PA. Was Home Alone 2 fully filmed in Trump Plaza? We did a ton of stuff in the plaza. And then the big, one of the big sequences I'll remember the most is when Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern are chasing, Macaulay Culkin kind of across whatever it is, 59th Street into the Intercentral Park with like, you know, a thousand extras at Christmas time. How do you like the ice, kid? <laughs> Let's go for a little stroll in the park. I was standing on one of the corners trying to hold back the regular folk from like, and it's like, you know, like, Tuesday at like six. So there's like a 500 people. And look, hold on, because you, we have to, there there has to be some explanation here. You can only ask them nicely to not enter the shot. Agreed. It's, it's very true. And this is New York, by the way, this is probably one of the (laughs) busiest corners in Manhattan, (laughs) except for times square. But they, they, they'd sent me to this corner thinking, Oh, Evan will handle it. It's it's not that crazy, but they'd sent one of New York finest with me. Thank God. And some, I said, hey, everybody, wait, 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 everybody, just wait, wait, wait. And the lights turned green. And I was like, everybody, wait. And then everybody was, the, all the New Yorkers were super nice. They waited, waited. And then some guy, I, that I, some New Yorker, I didn't see him. He grabs me by my lapels and, you know, it's the middle of winter, pulls, like starts to pull me like he's going to knock me out. And then over my right hand shoulder, I see a policeman's baton, like, poke this guy poke i'm saying like whack him they didn't strike him down like a baseball bat but they batoned him once in the center of his chest right where his right just below his necktie and the guy let me go the policeman grabbed him and took him aside and like reamed him one and said don't you ever touch anybody in this city ever again like that that is not cool and you know and he's like this is just some kid doing his job i mean and i was like you know, he didn't hurt the guy, but he, he scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and, and he stunned this dude. It was a big guy. You know, it was like a big Wall Street. Wait, kind of he, guy. Was, he, he was going to take a chunk. He was going to take a chunk out of you. Is that what was going to happen? This guy pulled me off my feet and like was dragging me towards like, like in one motion. And uh, this policeman essentially like saved me and like, you know, like, wow, pop this guy back and did it in a really, you know, in the right way. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's life in the big city, man. Let him go. Let him go after oh, that. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. It was like, wow. just like, keep on walking, asshole. Keep yeah, on walking. Gave, it was a lot of that. A, a lot of that. A, th- a, a firm talking to. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, what's hilarious is that for us, I, like I said, even just like seeing the Harvey Keitel thing, like the, at that time there was a ton of production in New York. So you could yeah. have that treat of like turning a corner and you didn't care what it was, TV, movie, whatever. You're just like, wow, there's trucks and people and movement. And it's like the circus is in town. And New York had not been fully cleaned up at that point yet. 
This no, and that, not, not that was the production value was yeah, the, like remember, urban squalor. <laughs> tagging, tagging. Yeah, no, and, I remember shooting in Soho. It was dangerous, you know, and now it's like you could eat off the floor. But further to Evan's point, I just remember it got to the point where a lot of, well, some New Yorkers would be like, would purposely make noise and then you'd pay them off. Like they understood how production worked and what, you know, silence or whatever was needed. And so like certain, you know, kind of scammy guys would be there purposely making noise until, you know, some production manager kind of took them aside and slipped them a few bucks and then they walked away and it became like a hustle. Or you told your, uh, your police escort to go shut those guys up. And, and, and right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. They yeah. were only too happy to have a reason uh, to yeah. like handle someone. Yes. You get over here. You shut the fuck up. You know, it was a lot. I loved it. It was great. Thank you again for joining us on how I got greenlit. We really appreciate you coming along for the ride, but before we go any further, I'd like to get a little serious with you all for a second. I know you've got plenty on your plate to think about these days, but something that affects all of us is the fact that mother nature is taking a beating these days, wildfires, water shortages, and just plain weird weather are an unfortunate fact of life these days. The truth is it's only going to get worse over the next few decades. So you might ask yourself, what can we do? One thing we do is get educated. Next Chapter Podcast and the Clio Institute have teamed up on a podcast called House on Fire, co-hosted by Katrina Irwin, a 24-year-old climate activist, and Caroline Lewis, the founder of the Clio Institute. House on Fire is a youth-centered podcast that takes its name from Greta Thunberg's famous speech. It's youth-focused because, let's face it, us adults are leaving a pretty huge mess to clean up for the next generation. Each episode invites scientists, activists, artists, and more to have important conversations about this complex crisis. And the topics they cover could help you make decisions about how you might want to vote or spend your hard-earned money in the ways that leave behind a better world for those to come. So listen to House on Fire wherever you get your pods to stay informed and involved, or go to thecleoinstitute.org to learn more. Now, let's get back to how I got greenlit. Here's always the eternal question about film school. Was it worth it, Evan? Yes. Okay. And when we were there, I remember there was a there was a universal attitude, at least for the like the hungry ones, where after a year and we got the basics of like how a camera worked, how a light worked, how to record sound, we were all like, fuck this place, man. Let's go make a feature. You know, like <laughs> I remember a lot of us were like, for the for the amount of tuition we're paying, we should just take our senior year tuition, pool it together and make a feature, you know, which we tried to do and failed. But <laughs> the real value is i think what we're talking about now the network the, the friendships the relationships the the bonds that you make then what you know last to this day you yeah know? I, I i agree i mean you know you end up a lot of us ended up in, out here in la and you know you're on the lot or you're at el pollo loco and i mean that was the last time i saw todd phillips he like came up behind me in el pollo loco in burbank before the pandemic and no joke, he said to me in his classic, like creepy low voice, just to mess with me. He goes, you got any naked pictures of your mom? And I turn around and I'm like, Todd, he's like, Evan, what are you doing, buddy? I'm like, holy crap. You know, like, (laughs) so he really is the guy that opens the door and says, I'm here for the (laughs) gangbang. 
that's his sense of humor, man. I mean, he did. It was, I mean, like that was the funniest thing I'd heard in like, like a that's year, great. you know, but yeah, that's great. That's also how we got movies made. I mean, the first two films I made were with directors I went to school with, you know, Gustavo and with Eli, you know, so, so yeah. And now you've brought us oh, no. to the threshold of Eli Roth. Okay. So my way in before we get into the, the saga that is Cabin Fever was I vaguely knew Eli as the guy that made the crazy short film at NYU about like, what if Ronald McDonald was like a serial killer or something? Do you remember that movie that he did? Oh uh, yeah, no, no, he made it. We were in senior thesis class together. It was, uh, it was actually the Burger King. <laughs> the Burger King King. He actually is more of a psychopath than Ronald. Yeah. I yeah. Think. I mean, I'm not going to picture the movie because I think it's unpitchable, but essentially oh. uh, it was like the, the first two minutes of Eli's, NYU thesis film are the funniest thing I still might have ever seen. The rest of it I can't comment on. And and yeah, can what is it called? Can we can we? I Google think it was it? called it? Restaurant Dogs. And yes, it, that's right. It was a, so. There you go. He must have been there at that screening and was inspired, right? I, I, he it was Reservoir been. Dogs with the with the mascots of fast food restaurants. Yeah, right? yeah, Jack yeah. The it was, it was a Reservoir Dogs takeoff, and the big dumb idea, which was really well done, was that this guy Randy Pearlstein uh, goes into a Burger King and he wants a milkshake at like midnight, and they don't have one, and there are the milk the milkshake machines aren't working, and he complains, and the manager comes out, and the manager's like, "Look, there's nothing I can do," and Randy's funny. The script was funny. Every It was really, I was like, oh, this is fun. And then Randy goes, okay, I want to see the king. And he's like, oh, yeah, you want to see the king? He goes, I want to see the Burger King. And he goes, <laughs> and so like, and then, and then wackiness ensues. So like, and I was like, oh, that's really funny. Like, that's a, that that's a great, and, and, and Eli, I remember him pitching this film. You know, we had Boris Fruman as our professor, who was a Iron Curtain raised you know, imagine if Clint Eastwood was Russian. I mean, this is this is who our professor was, and he had this guy in stitches. Anyways, he made the film, and it was you know it was a student film. I think he I think he got like an like a student academy award nod or something for it. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it definitely put him on the map. And then years later, you brought me in. This was like late 90s when the digital, the first digital revolution had happened. And people were like, this internet thing's going to be TV. And and there was all these popped up like companies that came out of nowhere and had a bunch of money and wanted to make shows, right? So he had uh, created a show called The Rotten Fruit, which was like, what if the Sex Pistols were a bunch of fruit? And like mayhem ensued and it was a stop motion thing yep. and you were producing it and Roy Wood was involved. He had another show and we actually set up in a Burbank, an abandoned firehouse. You have to talk about who Roy Wood is though. Also, so Roy Wood is actually a legendary stop motion director, which I don't even know. How did you meet Roy? One of my first jobs when I moved to LA was I produced the last season of the stop motion shorts for the Fox show uh, in living color. I mean, they were right. all these stop motion shorts and Roy was like the lead art director animator under this guy, this other animators, more senior animator, Corky Quakenbush. So we did them all together and Roy and I became fast friends and 
And that's how I kind of got my interest in my first kind of exposure to stop motion. Roy and I did make a stop motion animated feature, which when we first ran it by the MPAA for ratings, they gave it an X. <laughs> so we had to recut it. And I remember thinking to myself, guys, it's clay. Like, yeah, why like- are you? And they're like, it's still a dick. That's a clay dick. You have to cut out the clay dick. Like, because you get this report and you're like, no, no, no penises, like a lot. <laughs> no simulated like, cock. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, yeah. yeah. Anyways, we're, we're. Yeah, no, we're way off the path. We but, but it takes us into, you know, what I would call like your Greenland moment, which is cabin fever, right? Yeah. I mean, that we were, it was that sort of liminal period between graduating NYU maybe coming out here, PAing like kind of entry level stuff, bumbling around, big dreams, bad scripts that you write at night and cha cha cha, you know, take us through it. Like you, you're friends with Eli after school and he says, Hey, I got a thing or did you, you know, how did this yeah, all come I mean, about? it actually, it actually kind of ties back to the rotten fruit because what I had made a film before then in Brazil, in Brazil with our friend, uh, Gustavo Lipstein called dead in the water. And We'd gotten uh, Henry Thomas and Dominique Swain to star in it, and which was like a coup. And then, you know, five companies wanted to finance it. And so we went down to Brazil and we made the film. And, and I don't know if you remember, when I had started The Rotten Fruit as the producer, and then I had to leave because Dead in the Water got greenlit. And I was like, dude, I'm going to Brazil. And I remember telling Eli, and he's like, well, what, what do you mean you're leaving? I'm like, look, my buddy Alex is going to step in. You're going to love him. It's going to be great. And then I'm like, I got to go to Brazil. And then as I left, like the, the the day before I left, Eli said to me, he's like, dude, did I tell you about this script I wrote called Cabin Fever? And I'm like, no. And he said, well, it's been, it was under option by some other group for like a year. And the option was coming up in like a week. And he's like, read it on the plane or just when you get back, we got to make this film. So I read it and it was it was perfect. In a lot of ways, it re- you know, it really was. I mean, I got to give Eli the credit, man. I was laughing out loud. I, I I was never a huge horror fan, but it was so Eli. You know, when you know the filmmaker as well as in, as I knew Eli, like when Eli moved to L.A., he like lived in my couch for a month, you know, and and I was like a newlywed. <laughs> I just got married. You know, so my wife was like, like, really, Evan? And then um, but when you can hear the voice of the filmmaker in your head as you read it, it just it just brought it so much to life and Eli like our plan he was like dude okay let's get Henry Thomas to play the lead and we'll get Dominique Swain to play one of the gals and I was like yeah dude like that's what I'm gonna do and none of that happened so then we I came back from filming in Brazil and Eli and I just started working together and we were like we got to cast the film and I was like all right and I'd worked with this really awesome casting director named Io Davis who is now I think the president of film entertainment at Disney. She reports directly to the head of Disney. She's like been killing it in a great way for the past like 15 years at Disney. Became the head of casting at at, at ABC, then head of casting at Disney. And now she's the president of film entertainment. And her casting partner, Joe, brought in all these wonderful actors. And we just started to kind of put it together. We felt like if we got a cool cast, the money would come, which was completely, you know... (laughs) ignorant of us what had really happened was that while i was making den the water another film had henry thomas and dominique swain we were we were getting them from their set 
to our set. They had the same agent, Tracy Brennan at ICM is now at CAA. And she, she, she would package them a lot in these small indies. So they were going from my friend Lauren's film to my film in Brazil. And Lauren and I struck up a friendship on the phone because I needed them to go to like the embassy and get their visa and they'll do, you know, do some stuff while they were filming her movie in North Carolina. And I remember saying to Lauren, you know, on the phone, I was like, oh, you were been so helpful. Like when we get back to LA, like, let me buy you lunch. Like, you know, like I really owe you a solid. And, and we did that. And so, and you know, like producers do, we exchange scripts. Like she gave me one of one of something she was developing. And I, I was like, I remember she's like, so like, what are you working on? I'm like, I only got this one thing, uh, cabin fever. And, and she read it and she loved it. And then she called me and said, I'd love to meet Eli. I've got an investor in North Carolina. The guy I think will do it. He owns a holiday inn that he built a small soundstage in the parking lot. He owns a prop shop, a costume shop and about 19 vehicles in uh, just outside of Greensboro, North Carolina. What do you guys say? And we were both like, hell yeah. You know, like, let's go. So we go to North Carolina with one quarter of the budget committed from our producing partner, Sam Fralick. And we were in talks with multiple parties to close the rest of it. And none of it closed. And we started shooting with no money because we had blown through the 250 grand that Sam had committed. And then it got hairy. You know, to Eli's credit, Eli had been working as David Lynch's assistant. We had attached David as an executive producer to the film, um, which most people don't know because he's not in the credits anywhere. David had said to Eli before we had all left, he had said, listen, you know, I can't do a David imitation. I'm sure everybody else can, but he had said, whatever happens, remember whatever happens, whatever happens, man, just remember it's your job to only think about what's going on in those 35 millimeter frames, like mm-hmm. ignore the noise and just mm-hmm. make that the best you can. And it was great advice because there was a lot of noise. I mean, we were, we were, we didn't have money for payroll. We were shooting on short ends. It, you know, it was, it was a lot. Let's define that. So short and back in the actual fil- chemical emulsion film days, short ends <laughs> were when it was the leftovers of a 400 foot roll from a film processing, like when you bought the film, students and very low budget films could buy kind of the leftovers. It's sort of like, it's a difference between a steak and hamburger. You're getting like basically each, each load, you know, which would take two to five minutes to load onto the Panavision camera. We had, We, we weren't exactly sure how long it would last. You know, the second assistant camera would say, I think it's 89 feet. And then the DP would do the math and he'd be like, 36 seconds. Okay, get ready to roll. And we'd be like, we got a 36. That's all we got in the camera. Yeah. All right. Make it work. You know, and and that's where Eli was really was really great at just what I would call transcending the script, making it his, making it his own, throwing lines at the actors, doing imp- improvisational things with them to get the best out of them. and you know, making it a fun, fun set, because the truth of it is, it was, you know, we were on the Titanic trying to plug the hole as it was going down on the phone, trying to raise money, trying to keep the unions at bay. It was a, it was the best worst film I'd ever been a part of. 
how did you survive? Where did the money end up coming from? By the way, this happens more often than people would think, by the way. It does. I mean, I had been spoiled a little bit on my first film because we had gotten these, you know, somewhat namey actors. To, and we had, we had a good budget. We made the Dead in the Water for almost two million bucks. In the case of Cabin Fever, you know, I think we'd bitten off more than we can chew. And Sam Freilich and uh, his group was able to put up another, uh, another, I think, 250 grand to kind of cut the first week payroll to the crew. And then we were sprinting because I think we all knew that the next payroll was we weren't going to make it. And then everybody called their parents and their friends and their blah, blah, blah. And I think we cobbled together, you know, another hundred grand, paid some people, didn't pay some people. We were supposed to shoot for 25 days. We shot for like 19. We left town with like 300 grand in local debt from all the rental companies and all this other stuff. And I'm being I think you, meant you skipped town. Dude, we skipped town like, and we didn't pay the crew the last week's salary, which is one of the, it's a horrible thing to say. And to this day, it still makes my stomach churn. You never paid the crew for that. That's not, no, no, we did pay them. Oh, okay. We had also been flipped. But we didn't have the money at the time. We so the union showed up. You were non. You were. This was a we non-union project in North Carolina. One day, four guys that were extras from The Sopranos or looked like they were uh, before The Sopranos existed showed up on our set and said, with heavy New Jersey accents, "I'm a proud uh, uh, former uh, uh, Livingston guy. You are now a union shoot, and that's it." And in our union deal, if the film came out and uh, hit a certain threshold, uh, we would give the crew a bump, which we did. If we missed a payment, it would accrue interest or something like that, some sort of interest accruing. And so when we got back to L.A., you know, we with our tails between our legs and, and a lot of uh, short ends, Eli and our, uh, and our editor, uh, Ryan Folsey, whose dad was a legendary editor, George Folsey, uh, George kind of oversaw the edit as well. They put together a cut real quick. Our executive producer, Susan Jackson, who's no longer with us, within about a month of editing, she said, get me like a VHS with five minutes of footage, like some sort of scenes. And don't make a trailer. Just get me something I can show investors that the movie's done, kind of. And she put together, she, she, she brought in a group called Deer Path um, out of the East Coast. They loved it. And they said, okay, how much do you need? And we're like, we're like, I don't know, a million bucks or whatever it was, 900,000. That money went to A, paying the crew the last kind of week and a half's wages we owed. It included paying off all the money we owed back in North Carolina. It paid to finish the film. And then it paid for the three or four days of additional shooting we needed because we didn't finish the script. You know, we shot in Griffith Park at night for three or four to, days to and double for the, the woods <laughs> yeah they, i mean the booth oh well explain that so you cut it all together and you're like wait we have huge gaps in like sort of narrative i mean we knew what we didn't shoot you know it wasn't a mystery we thought well we could live without this gag which the deer going through the the car with Ryder strong we couldn't afford to do it then we not then we got the money investment we could do it the at night kind of like harmonica gag you know uh party you know, a, bu- a bunch of stuff that Eli really felt passionate about that was important to the film that gave it that kind of, you know, goofiness, that goofy fun, 
You know, mm-hmm. we just, you know, we had to kind of leave it by the wayside in North Carolina, but we picked it up in LA. And then we got into, we got, we finished the film and got it into to the Toronto Film Festival. And one of the first, or I think it might have been the second or third year they had started the Midnight Madness section. And then it went to Midnight Madness and then it sold for 15 million bucks. Wow. <laughs> so, and then it sold for $15 million. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, yeah. it's a great punchline, but let's chop it up a little bit. So, you shoot it for under a million and with all the all in true costs were above one five. Okay. So one five with all this like stop start and we're out yep, of money yep. and we find the, a new angel arrives at just the right moment. And like most stories of most indie films and you get it done. And did you have friends that, had friends at toronto like tell us about no friends you just literally like Like, came off the fucking turnip truck and just susan jackson again almost well our ep was also our sales agent and she then decided that she uh she was very close with cassian elways who was the biggest agent at william morris that sold finished films and they'd partnered so we had submitted the film to the film festival and when William Morris submits a film to the film festival, it maybe goes to the front of the line. But there's that's no, what I was trying to no say. Guarantee. Make fun of there's me. no guarantees. Yeah, but, there's no there's no guarantees. But well, there's there's equal and the, there's no there's no no equal. no. I know. I, I mean, I, I I've been doing this a lot of years, and I'll tell you this: if you know, Cassie will tell you the same thing. You know what? He can make the call. They'll take his call. They're like, right. "Hey, thank you. This is great. We can't wait to see it." And and then you sit we'll, and you wait. We'll get back to you. Then they called and said, we love it. But here's the funny thing. They said, look, we love it. We're going to put it in the second week of the festival. We, there's a couple other like horror films that we're going to do premieres. And we're going to do that kind of thing with. But yours is going to come in the second week. And we're like, what, really? Like, okay, well, we're just happy to be here. So that's important because... Nothing sold in at Toronto in the first week of the festival. There was no, mm. you know, the King's Speech. There was no the Cave or anything. There was nothing. Nothing had sold. So every, mm-hmm. all the buyers were like dying to buy something. Mm. And so at our like Wednesday afternoon preview screening, all the film acquisition executives like jammed in there. I had to give up my seat. I'm standing in the back with like Lauren and Cassian and Susan and. 10 12 minutes in or um one of the executives one of these acquisition people like runs out and we're like oh my god it was like one of the first murder scenes or something and when we light the the guy on fire and we're like oh god oh we're they're they're barfing and then no they were on their blackberry calling their bosses saying (laughs) because i was like i ran i I walked out and they were like listen there's this film we gotta buy it it's called cabin fever you know and we're like okay alex you know who was in that audience uh-uh. Was Gary Wax? Nice, Gary, our fellow, fellow yeah, fellow NYU, NYU guy who was a Miramax was work- uh, acquisitions guy. He was working for Miramax, and I saw him going. Yeah. So he was like, "Oh, look at you, Evan! Hey, you got a film here? Hey, buddy, that's great, man! I can't wait to see it." And then, like an hour and a half later, he was like, "What do I get? What do I got to do to buy this film?" And I was like, "Talk to Cassian, like." Sorry, bro. Like our yeah. relationship doesn't exist during the festival. I love you. I mean, <laughs> like to this day, Gary, salt of the earth, awesome guy. But like, you know, we both know the rules. And um, and I remember the lights come up 
nobody claps this is a bunch of industry assholes and right. everybody storms cassian and susan and cassian <laughs> as he sees the hordes coming he kind of like shoves me lorna eli outside and he's like go back to your hotel rooms don't answer your phones don't talk to anybody and then we're like okay what just happened and then he was setting the tone for the negotiation and then he said i'm not talking to any of you i will see you at the after party tonight and we were like uh uh what but cassian they have checks in hand no 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 Dude, this is this is this is why Cassian is is a legend because he knows dude, he knows what he's doing. He was like, make him wait. Right. And then that night, we showed it to fifteen hundred people in Toronto, real people, not industry schmucks. The house, everybody went bonkers. Burned, we, burned it down. Burned it down, you know. And then we had this big ass after party, and that's when Cassian. Like all the all the film executives were outside trying to get in. And he was like, "No, none of them are on the list. Don't let them in." Oh my we're god! All, we're, we're all we're all having drinks, like waving at these guys, and then finally Cassian and Susan go outside and started started negotiating. They they're they're literally negotiating in the street. Well, they're like, you know, I wasn't at, at present for this part of it, but basically, it was happening though. It Something was happening. It yeah. was on. Cassian was Cassian was about to earn, you know, his percentage, which he did very, very well. Him and Susan just said, okay, what do you got? What do you got? Give me a number. Give me a number. And it was like, it was like the fucking price is right. I mean, it was nuts. And then it, it feels like that scene in trading places where it's like <laughs> they come out to the floor and they're like, okay, 10 shares for you, a hundred. Yes. Okay, was, no, yeah. I mean, but, yeah. but, but Cassian has ice water in his veins in the best right. way. And um, it continued to the next day. Um, we all went to bed late, you know, it was like three in the morning. And, and then, you know, we had, I think we all get together for lunch and, and then, and then something had happened. Gary Wax called Harvey Weinstein and said, you got to come see this film. And, and Harvey didn't want to come. And then Gary's bosses said, no, no, get up here. So, we got a call that Harvey was flying up. Can we get the print over to him? Because we didn't have a screening until like the next day or something. So the answer was, of course, yes. So this is, so Cassian and Susan got us all together and said, okay, we're going to let Harvey watch it. Lionsgate and a few of the other buyers had caught wind of this. And Lionsgate said, we want to start negotiating. Come to our suite in an hour, which is the same time that Harvey, the film was supposed to start for Harvey. And the deal was once you walk in, if you walk out, there's no deal. If we don't sign a piece of paper in that room, there's no deal. So we had arranged a slightly complicated like uh, signal amongst the parties to how to communicate like if Harvey wanted it or not. And Harvey walked out of the film 20 minutes in and said, yeah, I don't like this movie. And uh, the signal got to the uh, to our negotiators up in the Lionsgate suite, and we closed the deal with Lionsgate, and uh, that was that. Uh, you're going to love it. It's just peace and relaxation and relentless pounding for like six days. <laughs> don't forget about the beer. Wow. place is amazing. Sometimes you've known someone a really long time. You just want to kiss them just to see if they're a good kisser. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 
Whoa, whoa. Boy, that's how people get themselves shot. It looks like you guys were having some kind of party last night. She's sick. I'm not dying like that. What are we dying? That's how it goes down, folks. That's how it happens sometimes. It's life, life in the NFL. And so this is, you know, we're some years down the line. Do you do you see that this is this how a young filmmaker would experience a, a successful film festival to this day, or has things changed? Or you talk to some people now, and Netflix and the streamers with their sort of like unlimited bank accounts, kind of through the whole foreign or film festival acquisition market out of whack. Right. I mean, I mean, they have to an extent, you know, I mean, the, the amount of money that cabin fever made at Toronto, that number held like as the, as like the record record. Yeah. Up until relatively recently. And it was only beaten by Cassie and Elways again um, at Sundance (laughs) with Mudbound Mudbound for like 15 and and change. (laughs) But I mean, I would say this, it's like the film festival launching pad is still very real. Filmmakers can choose to hold on to their rights until then. Or, you know, if they pre-shop the film and try to get it financed through you know, Netflix or, or Hulu or Amazon, you know, a lot of the deals I'm hearing are, we're, we're going to do a negative pickup for at what's called actual costs plus 20 or 25%. So you get a certified public accountant to send us the receipts and whatever it costs you to make the film, we'll buy it plus 25% and that's hmm. it. And, that, and that's it. It's actually not a bad deal for young filmmakers, you know, but it puts a lot of onus on them to get investors to, to pay for it. That's kind of one version I've heard. Of course, all of the streamers and, and even the studios still pre, you know, finance films fully, mostly to more established directors. With talent attached. With talent attached. And then the majority of the festivals are, have still got the true indies. You know, that's the uh, the discovery zone for new talent. But it has changed quite a bit because the studios and the streamers have taken over a lot of... Like, do you think Cabin Fever gets into Toronto if it comes out today? Right. I mean, I think, it, I think it would, you know. I think it's it harder. Would you have to admit it is harder, though, for independent films to get into... Without any real names. Fest. I mean, you had decent actors but you didn't have oh yeah, yeah nobody was a name i yeah. mean it's very true oh and I, I should tell you the coda story for david lynch oh yeah what happened with what happened with with david lynch david's still the smartest guy in the in the room like wherever you go having only met him in person once um with eli david said that when he saw the film we screened it for him at his house before toronto and he loved it. He was laughing in like all the right places. And he was like, he was so proud of Eli. And it was, a, it was a great moment for Eli. And he said, listen, I want to take my name off the film, which was in his contract to do. And, and Eli was like, what, what, what do you mean? And he said, if my name's on this film and you go to Toronto in two weeks or whatever it was, everyone's going to think I had something to do with how good this film is. And Eli, I didn't, I didn't give you notes. I wasn't on set. This is you like, this is your film. This is like, this is your, 
you know, your persona on screen. I don't want to distract from that. I'm doing you a favor. Take my name off it. You deserve whatever comes out of this because it's going to be great. And I remember Eli was at first deflated, but we all were. Because I was like, what? What? David's taking his name? I, Angelo Balamente had done the score as a favor to Eli. You know, uh, David Lynch's longtime composer. Mm-hmm. And, and we're like, fuck. And then we go to Toronto and we were all like, shit, David was right. You know, <laughs> David was right. You know, the film like sold and D- David Lynch, it wasn't a David Lynch thing. You know, it was an Eli, Evan and Lauren thing. Right. And that's how it should have been. And David knew that, you know, and he was at that place in his career. He didn't need to prove himself. He's fucking David Lynch. Thank you for joining us for part one of our interview with producer Evan Ostrowski. Join us next week when we continue with the conversation about his career and the influence of the film Manhunter, directed by Michael Mann. Join us on Twitter and Instagram at How I Got Greenlit. If you have any questions, comments, email us at howigotgreenlit at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.